This ship isn't built to withstand centrifugal force greater than 4G's. What happens at 4G's? It will come apart. Welcome back to For All Mankind, the official podcast. I'm Chris Marshall, and I play Danielle Poole on the Apple TV Plus series. Each week, I sit down with the cast, crew, and show creators to discuss everything from the latest developments and plot twists to behind-the-scenes stories. This podcast will be jam-packed with spoilers, so if you haven't seen episode one of season three yet, just press pause, go watch, and come back. There is a lot to talk about. And I'm sitting down today with our fearless leader, the show creator and sci-fi legend, Ron Moore, as well as former astronaut and technical consultant on all things space, Garrett Reisman. But first, let's do a quick recap. The show picks up nine years after season two. It's 1992, and the race is on to launch a manned mission to Mars in 1996. Margot still runs NASA and is still talking to Sergei, who we now know is using Margot as a Soviet asset. Meanwhile, Ellen's political career has taken off. She's already been elected senator in Texas and is now running for president. But forget Earth. Most of the action this episode takes place up in space. The first ever orbital hotel, run by Karen Baldwin, is hosting a wedding for Tracy and Gordo's son, Danny Stevens. In attendance is my character, Danielle Poole, along with my buddy, hi Bob, Ed Baldwin, and our families. Ed and Karen are now divorced, and Ed has brought his latest wife, making things a little awkward. The wedding really gets out of control when a piece of North Korean space debris jams a thruster, causing the artificial gravity to go haywire. It looks like the entire station is about to be pulled apart when Danny Stevens mounts a daring rescue and saves the day. Whew, talk about a memorable wedding. There are pressure suits in the shuttle. If I can get to them, I can make it to the thruster. Even if you make it out there, the gravity around the edge of that ring will fling you off like a rag doll. It's too dangerous. What other choice do we have? Hi, guys. What's up? Hi, Chris. Hey, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. So today we're obviously talking about episode 301, which is a real doozy. I am wondering, Ron, why start the season off with just this enormous big bang? Why not give it a little slower start? Yeah, we looked at the previous two uh, starts and both of them had slightly slower starts to them. But the thing that they had in common was that at the end of each each of the premiere episodes, you had these sort of high stakes dramas that, that centered around action in space. In season one, it was the Apollo 11 near disaster. And then, you know, in the second season, it was the solar flare on the moon. And what we liked was continuing the tradition of being able to touch base with all the characters, catch up on where everybody was in their life, but know that there was going to be something kind of big and 
high stakes by the end of the episode. I think this one, you kind of knew that a little faster because as soon as you kind of fade in on the space hotel at the top of the show, you just have a feeling something's going to go wrong here. So we kind of telegraphed that a little bit uh, earlier than we did in the other two because it just kind of felt like that's what people were going to expect. So let's just lean into it. So I want both of you to talk to me about the design of Polaris, because, you know, throughout the history of space and television, we've seen a million iterations of what space habitation looks like. We've seen the round bubbles. We've seen, you know, the every variation of uh, something that's triangular, something that's cylindrical. How did we come up with this kind of hotel Ferris wheel? Uh, I remember the early conversations in the writer's room when we started talking about this idea of a hotel. I think right away we all just started talking about 2001 was like a, mm-hmm. a quick reference point because that was, you know, very iconic for a station, you know, and it was around the same period. And we just thought that was probably the start jumping off point. And I think, and Garrett, correct me, I think we kind of then reached out to you and started talking about, was that the best way to go? Is that realistic? And would that would that be, you know, the, the best design for something like this? Yeah, I had, like, just finished teaching my class on artificial gravity at USC, so I was, like, super stoked that I was ready to jump in and, and say, yeah, that's a great idea to do a, a rotating wheel that generates, basically using centrifugal force, generates artificial gravity. And also, at that same time, I remember you guys coming to me and saying, hey, we want to do kind of, for this first episode, we want to do kind of an old-school disaster movie kind of uh, episode in space where mm-hmm. it'd be like the ship getting hit by that giant tidal wave. And I remember being like, well, we've done some crazy things on the show, but like a wave in space, that's not going to work, you know? (laughs) So, and so then we started thinking about what can go wrong on the space hotel. I was like, well, the way you create the artificial gravity is by the rotation, by spinning it, right? Mm -hmm. So it's kind of like that amusement park ride, the... The Gravitron. The, uh, yeah. The Gravitron. Yeah. yeah. Where you get pushed against the side. And, mm-hmm. you know, that could get out of control if you just spin too fast. Then mm. gravity will get more and more and more. And, and that could be fun to play with. And, and so that's kind of where we ended up. Yeah. And I think we were really intrigued by the by the threat being too much gravity. You know, usually mm-hmm. in space, it's, it's the opposite. And it's the, what happens in a zero-G environment and how th- the physics of all that usually provides you know, the, the drama in a, in a series like ours or in a show like ours. And it was kind of fun to go the other direction and go, oh, okay, what if it's too much gravity crushing them down? So before we go too deep into the great big crash that almost kills all of our heroes, let's just back it up a little bit to talk about what happens in between the end of season two and the beginning of season three. One of the things that I love so much about our show is that we have these really sophisticated, almost like television recreations of what actually happened. So we saw it in season two with Tracy sitting down with Johnny Carson. And throughout the season, we see it with Ellen in her political campaign as we're melding the real life footage with our TV show footage. So Ron, talk to me about some of the stuff. Like I'm thinking about the Dennis Quaid, Meg Ryan, Love in the Skies. Like how do you guys decide which pieces of uh, real life history do we include? in our story and which pieces do we allow a little uh, a little imagination to take play you know it's a lot of kicking ideas around in the writers room and you know as as you approach the season you start talking first it's okay roughly what year are we going to kick to because we know it's going to be roughly a decade but which actual year is it going to be and then you mm-hmm. start talking about what are the events that are in that year what are the events that led up to it one of the big ones is is this a presidential election year because that defines mm. the, the political landscape 
And then you start getting into conversations about, well, who has been the president and who was in the president in the interim years? And then kind of branch out from there. Well, how did that affect the world? And what what Mm -hmm. are the changes that would happen, you know, as a result of that? And then the rest of it is just fun ideas. There's like tons and tons. There's so many more ideas than ever end up in in the montage at the beginning of the show because you're you're just Mm -hmm. constantly, people are pulling in random things, pop cultural references, sports events, just everything across the spectrum of a given decade of history that could change or would stay. And then you start honing it in on, okay, what are the ones that we want to highlight? What are the ones that are important for the show to understand? You know, you had to Mm -hmm. understand Ellen's political career and how she got to that place. And that also meant that you, like I said, you had to kind of define the political spine that got her there. So we knew that had to be front and center to to a whole bunch of it. Then it was like, what's the state of the space race? Had to get kind of get feathered into that. And then the rest of it is just sort of, well, what would be interesting? What are the cool mm-hmm. things that could happen? You know, some things are going to remain the same. What are the, the things that would change? And you just keep moving it through the whole process. Yeah, The end of the sort of teaser at the top of 301 ends with the Bill Clinton quote from his speech saying, um, our eyes have not yet seen, nor our ears heard, nor our minds imagined what we can build. And I just found that so profound. Talk to me, Ron, about that primal urge to build, to explore, to create. That seems to be the marrow and the bones of For All Mankind. Yeah, I think it's conceptual to what the show is and and how the show was pitched originally. You know, when we first started talking about the show, when I first sat down with Garrett and said, you know, we're talking about a world in which NASA continued to go past the Apollo program to the moon and beyond. And, you know, why would they do that? And first it was the Russian thing, you know, beat us there. And then out of that sense of, we won't be beaten like that. We're going to get back up and, and we'll show you. But on top of that, it had to be something that was driving even that impulse, that there was a, a sense of mission, a sense of destiny, a sense of like, there's something out there for us, that we're not just meant to stay on this little speck of dust in this tiny fraction of a corner of the universe. Like there's an enormous, unbelievably large universe out there and that we should go explore it. We should be part of it. We should understand where we fit into it. We should see if there's anybody else out there. And that kind of constant drive to see what's over the horizon, I think, is embodied in a lot of ways in that Clinton quote. And I think it is what drives the show. It's the sense of standing on the on the shore and looking out at the at the sea and wondering what's over that horizon. And it's just a it's an eternal kind of drive we've felt in our in our civilization. Mm. Garrett, I remember last year when you and I sat down for the podcast and we talked about the overview effect. Could you remind our audience a little bit of what exactly is that experience? Because you've experienced it firsthand, having been to the International Space Station like a bunch of times. And also talk about how that experience, the overview effect, how it affects you, not just as an astronaut, but as a human being. Sure. No, I'd be happy to. But uh, just to start out the tech onto what Ron was just talking about, not to get too philosophical, but one of the things that's really interesting to me about the human experience is that we have just a right mix of good and evil mm. in us and in our society that the future is really hard to predict. And I think we very well could be heading down a dystopian path. And some days it seems mm-hmm. more and more likely that that's where we're going. Mm-hmm. And other days it seems like, hey, you know, the possibility for utopia is also an outcome that could happen, right? And it's this battle between our better and and worse angels that makes human life interesting, sometimes too interesting. 
But I do think that that's really at the heart of, of the show, which is it's very much in the balance in the show, as it is in real life. You know, we could see this going in, in especially in season two, and we almost ended up in nuclear war. You know, we could mm. go down a very dark path, but at the same time, there's there's these you know, beacons of hope that, you know, maybe we could be heading towards a better place. And resolving, like, where do we end up as as a species is, I think, one of the things about the show that I really like how we explore those concepts. Mm -hmm. But the overview effect. So the overview effect... uh, a lot of people, when they go up to space and they look back on Earth, they say that it gives them this sensation that, hey, we're all in the same home and that we really should be heading more towards that more utopian path, that really we're all in this together and that we should unite as a common humanity. And I'll be honest with you, Chris, I, I didn't really feel that. Really? <laughs> when I, yeah, when I was up there. No. <laughs> I could care less about looking back at Earth. <laughs> no, I mean, it was pretty. Don't get me wrong. I, I love looking out the window and taking pictures of, like, the pyramids and stuff. It was great. So, anyway, Garrett Reisman hates Earth, <laughs> doesn't think the overview effect matters at all. No, the opposite. is <laughs> the opposite. It's like, I don't think you should have to go to space and look out the window of a spaceship to realize that we're all human beings. Sure. And that all those yeah. things that divide us, like nationality, all the tribalism things like race and, and religion and whatnot, are much less important than our common humanity. I think that's self-evident, and you shouldn't have to strap into a rocket and blast off into space and look out mm-hmm. a window to know that that's fundamentally true. So when mm-hmm. I looked out the window, I saw the Earth. I'm like, yeah, okay, yeah, we're all living on this one planet. We should have figured that out after Apollo 8 sent that picture down from when they came around the moon. Mm-hmm. Why are people still struggling with this? <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. That's kind of my reaction. But mm-hmm. but other people have said that, yeah, it really gives them a perspective. And a lot of astronauts have come back and said that it does give them this kind of sense of a higher purpose or of a unity. You mentioned the phrase beacons of hope. And I remember thinking when I first started to watch 301 that there was a quick little blurb that said something to the effect that we were combating and sending back the effects of climate change because of a lot of the changes that have been made. And my mind just was blown like, wow, wouldn't it be lovely to live in a world where we were actually able to combat climate change? Ron, talk more about what Garrett was sort of tipping on, which is the versions of utopia, the versions of this world being actually better than the world that we live in because of the scientific advances that we've made. Yeah, that too was part of the concept and the promise of the show. And I fully admit that that worldview in me is shaped by, you know, Star Trek and my Mm -hmm. childhood love of that show and a science fiction piece that said, it's going to be okay. We're going to solve these Mm -hmm. things. You know, the future is actually going to be pretty good. And it's one of, to this day, it's still one of the few science fiction things that says that. Most Mm -hmm. sci-fi is pretty dystopian and says things are going to be really, really going to suck in the future. (laughs) But that was an inspiring message to me as as a child. And I, I clung to it and held on to it, you know, for my whole life. So it was fun and an honor to get to do a show where you could kind of recapture that and say, yes, there is a better path forward. Yes, let's use our technology and our scientific knowledge for good instead of evil. And it is possible to do that. And it is possible to make a better world. And it is possible to solve big societal problems. It's not to say that it's easy or that it will happen in an instant or in a year or even a couple of decades, but that progress is possible. And that I would like to think that through scientific achievement, through reaching out to the stars, through the development of technologies and all kinds of concomitant, you know, advances that come along with space exploration, that you can make a big difference on planet Earth and that you can have a better world and that the future can be bright. And that that is one of the guiding principles of this show. Yeah. 
There's a lot about our show that I just think to myself, like, why can't this be real life? And then there are aspects that I'm glad are not real life. (laughs) (laughs) One being our newest character, Dev. We're going to see more of him as the season goes on. But I'm curious, you know, when choosing this sort of Svengali billionaire type character, how did you decide on what that should look like? Because we're seeing in our world that there's a Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk's and Typically, that role is played by, you know, middle-aged white men. Was it a choice to cast Eddie Gathegi in that role, or was Eddie just truly the best guy for the job? Was there a thought behind having this billionaire um, phenom be a Black man? Yeah, it was a deliberate choice. I mean, we decided, Mm -hmm. as we talked about the character, that obviously the people, the men that you mentioned— come to mind because they're part of sure. the archetype of what's happened and the notion of the billionaire who is able to self-finance or finance in some capacity their own sort of space program felt like it was definitely part of the show. The entry mm-hmm. of private enterprise into space exploration felt like it had to happen in the sort of the version in our alternate history and that it would happen just like it's happening in in our world. And then it was a question of who represents that. And mm-hmm. we thought it was an interesting choice to not just make it another middle-aged white guy that the audience was so familiar with. And mm-hmm. it also helps differentiate it. It's also like, mm-hmm. okay, this is not mm-hmm. supposed to be a stalking horse for Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos. You know, we're not trying to sort of do a cute a wink and a nod to the audience. Oh, it's this is really our caricature of one of those guys. Mm-hmm. We're trying mm-hmm. to say, yeah, those guys exist and they have impact and they too move the conversation forward in terms of space exploration and what they're doing. But we didn't want to just do a different one of those guys. Let's make somebody different and somebody that also represents the worldview of For All Mankind's alternate history where diversity had blossomed a little earlier and that things were sure. moving more firmly down that path. So it felt like for all those reasons, that was the the choice that we made. I love that choice. I love that choice. And it's one of my favorite things about working on this show is that the thing that is the most obvious is very rarely the thing that you see in our story. It's constantly keeping you on your toes. And so it forces you to truly just observe the story rather than, like you said, observe these archetypes and fill in the blanks of, oh, okay, I know what this will be. It doesn't allow the audience to get ahead of the show. Garrett, talk to me about the size and scope of Polaris. I remember in watching 301, there's a shot when we first see it for the first time. We're we're panning away from Karen in the hotel room, and then we see that there's this circular aspect, and then it just gets larger and larger and larger. And you think to yourself, like, this damn thing is going to go on forever. And then finally, we see the full scope of Polaris. Why is it important that it is just so big? The funny thing is, it's not quite big enough. (laughs) <laughs> to be honest <laughs> So, and what I mean by that is, so we set the size, and it was pretty big, but so smaller than the one that's actually in 2001. Then I, I did the math and figured out how fast we would have to rotate to create 1G, to create the equivalent of Earth's gravity. And when we did that, our team started doing the, the visuals of what the rotation would look like out the window. It was nauseating because it would be spinning mm. so fast that instead of this beautiful, like, space hotel for tourists that they can have this serene wedding with a beautiful view of the earth out the window that would be magical and, and uplifting. Instead, the thing was spinning around so fast, everybody would be vomiting. <laughs> so so we ended up having this kind of slowed the spin down. So the, the, the spin rate that's actually we ended up using 
mm-hmm. is actually not enough to create 1G because the faster you spin, the more gravity you create mm-hmm. and the more centrifugal force. So if you want to get the same amount of gravity, you need to increase the radius of the wheel. So you can either increase the radius of the wheel or you can spin faster. So the shorter the wheel, the faster you have to spin. And it goes as the spin rate squared or directly proportional to the radius. To get a small spin, you have to have a big, big radius. And we didn't quite make it big enough for that. But it all worked out, you know, through the magic of Hollywood. So you're telling me that the show is fake. That's what you're saying, Garrett. No, that you know, I love the, the fact that thing. it's not perfectly fake. Because it, <laughs> if we could fake the whole thing, then, then that would give a lot of credence to these crazy conspiracy theorists out there that think that, like, we faked the moon landing and all this stuff. And I'm like, we, even with today's, you know, top-notch VFX, we still can't fake a moon landing. So, you know, they couldn't have possibly done it in 1969. So I love that aspect of it, actually. <laughs> what is helium-3, and is that real, or do we make that up for the show? Helium-3 is a real thing. It is a form of helium that could potentially be used for nuclear fusion in an even more clean and efficient manner than using kind of what we probably will do with the first generation of fusion reactors. So the idea being that the problem is there's not a lot of helium-3 on Earth. It's very rare on Earth, but there is a bunch of it on the moon. And we can use it as a source of energy? Well, you can use it as a source of energy in a fusion reaction. So there's nuclear fission reaction, which is like the nuclear reactors we have today, where we break atoms apart. And in the process Mm -hmm. of breaking them apart, they release a bunch of energy with the old Mm -hmm. E equals MC squared Einstein's thing. I'm familiar with that. So if we can mimic that process, instead of breaking the atom apart, we take two atoms and we smush them together. Mm. And in the process, release a bunch of energy. The beautiful thing about that, you can use very light elements like helium and hydrogen, and they are not radioactive, so it doesn't produce any waste. So we can get all kind of like clean energy, green energy, without creating a bunch of radioactive waste and all the problems that we face with nuclear fission reactors today which is why in the show, it really revolutionizes the whole energy sector. Basically, if we can do this, we could solve climate change because there's no greenhouse gas emissions. It's just helium, right? Wow. Currently overwhelmed by the science of it all. (laughs) Ron, talk to me about our cast of characters. I'm going to just lob up each one of these guys. And you just give me a quick rundown of where they are when we see them at the top of season three. Let's start with our leader. Let's start with Ed Baldwin. Well, the top of three, he's still at NASA, which is kind of interesting that he's he's stuck with the program. And he's Mm -hmm. continued to fly in space actively after his return to active duty in the second season. And we discover that he's also divorced Karen. And is remarried, mm-hmm. married to a woman named Yvonne, I believe. And I think we Real discovered that it's not, that Yvonne. <laughs> she's a handful. And I think we discover that she's the second wife <laughs> after Yeah, Karen, yeah, like, exactly. One of many. <laughs> one of many. So he's he's been going around around the block a little bit. Okay. Next up is Margo. Margo is still at NASA, JSC, and she has accumulated even more power unto herself. In the writer's room, we kind of referred to Margo as the J. Edgar Hoover of NASA in that she's Mm. kind of become untouchable. Mm -hmm. Like now the NASA administrators are almost figureheads. They kind of come in Mm -hmm. and yeah, they have statutory authority over the agency, but the real power is Margo Madison and nobody messes with Margo to the point Mm -hmm. where now she doesn't even have the fold out couch. She has a full on bedroom, an office, and home suite at the agency. Then there is Karen Baldwin. High-powered businesswoman now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And at the end of season two, we saw her do the first deal with uh, Sam Cleveland, who bought the outpost and talked about franchising it. And Karen had the idea and the inspiration, really, for space tourism 
at the end of mm-hmm. season two. And in between seasons, mm-hmm. she continued to work with Sam. You know, Sam was the more experienced, big entrepreneur. Karen was a small businesswoman who had lofty dreams. They formed a partnership. And the two of them came up with this idea of the space hotel and space tourism as the future. And her knowledge of the space program and her contacts at NASA and, and just poaching astronauts and engineers to this venture ultimately is what yields uh, the Polaris Hotel. I want to talk just a bit about Karen, because, you know, when I look at all of our characters, they've all made real advances, but for the most part remained the nucleus of who they were all remain the same. So it's very linear to see, okay, I can see a world where Ellen would go from being a NASA administrator and, you know, working her ways up in the political brackets to now she's running for Senate in the state of Texas. Karen, to me, seems she's just such an enigma. When we meet her, she is so defined by motherhood. In season one, she's so defined by her tangential relationship to NASA, by being a military wife, by being an astronaut's wife. And then we see her in season three, and she is a wheeling, dealing businesswoman. As a showrunner and writer and creator, how do you decide this character really makes a, a large departure from who we once met them as? Sometimes it's just dictated by the easiest thing. You know, For certain <laughs> characters, you do kind of see, here's an easy path forward. You kind of go, well, obviously, that's the next step that they would take. And mm-hmm. you kind of take that step. And sometimes that's a bad move because you, maybe you should have decided to do something more radical or upend expectations. And sometimes we will do that. We'll go in and like decide that, you know, for instance, that Tracy and Gordo at the end of season one had gotten back together and all seem happy and happily ever after. And we decided, well, that's boring. Let's break them up and that their traumas would rise and they just couldn't make it happen for each other. With a character like Karen, it was interesting because she was the one that went on, in many ways, the biggest journey over season one. So right from the beginning, Mm -hmm. she has this, she does start as the prototypical astronaut wife former military wife that's all defined by her husband and her child mm-hmm. and as and her mm-hmm. role as a homemaker. But over the course of that season, her whole world gets upended because suddenly mm-hmm. there's women in the program. Her best friend is suddenly an astronaut, which really challenges her in a lot of ways. And the biggest thing, of course, is she uses, loses her child you know, in a horrific mm-hmm. accident. And that's a devastating event in her life. And Ed's not even there and she has to go through it by herself. And it really makes her by the end of that season question everything. She's she's smoking pot by the end of that season and questioning mm-hmm. life and her role in it and what she wants to be and where is she going to go. So when we came into season two, Karen was a big question mark. Okay, where does she go? Because she had, you know, her world had really collapsed. It gave us a great opportunity to then redirect the character, to send the character someplace else. What's an unexpected place for Karen to go? What would she do, you know, after that? Well, what if she bought the outpost? And from that little idea that somebody just pitched in the room of what if she bought the outpost, everything else kind of followed on from that. And it was great. It was just a great moment of inspiration that, you know, you could really redefine the character, but redefine the character in a way that felt true and organic to all the things that had happened to her and who we had set her up as. I'm thinking as we're talking about NASA, one of the themes that we've seen a lot in our show is, you know, we see it in season one where Ed is really lamenting having not gone for it when he had the opportunity to land on the moon. And then we see that theme recur for him many times, his experience of NASA isn't brave, NASA doesn't push the envelope. Is that your experience, Garrett? that NASA is more cautious than, say, SpaceX, having worked for both? The short answer to that question is yes. 
Mm-hmm. And it's really interesting to see the kind of the rise of commercial space in this season of For All Mankind because it does mirror in a lot of ways what really happened in my experience just in the past decade or so at NASA. What happened, NASA used to be very forward-leaning and was mm-hmm. unafraid to fail and when they were testing and took a lot of chances using the most cutting-edge technology. I mean, you had to do that to do something as difficult as getting to the moon in 10 years, you know, and responding to President Kennedy's challenge. You had no choice but to lean forward like that. And over time, NASA got more and more risk-adverse, and really is because of the tragedies. So mm-hmm. first Apollo 1, and then Challenger, and then Columbia, and after each of those tragedies, NASA got less and less willing to take some big risks. And when I was there right after Columbia, the level of risk aversion was approaching the level of risk, meaning that you were no longer trying to mm-hmm. minimize risk, you're trying to eliminate risk. And the only way to do that in the rocket business is not to launch. Sure. It really kind of just ossifies and stops any kind of innovation. And by the way, this is a completely normal human reaction. Having lived through Columbia, I personally never would want to experience something like that again. And after each of these tragedies, there's the overwhelming impetus to make sure it never happens again, right? But one of the ways we react to that is by saying that, okay, we're not going to change anything because we're afraid that Mm -hmm. we're going to make a mistake. Mm -hmm. And we're afraid of an unintended consequence of a not fully thought through change. And what that does is it it destroys innovation. Sure. If you want to do anything new, it's really hard to do that in that environment. So NASA intentionally realized that they have a problem. Okay, they realized that they weren't innovating enough and that this was an issue, and they were having a hard time solving it internally. And some very smart people at NASA said, hey, we should try to get the private sector involved. Mm -hmm. Maybe we could kind of, if we do this experiment and give them more latitude, maybe they could provide that innovation, that spark. I was just going to say, you know, I thought about this a lot. It was, you know, I wrote that speech in the pilot about risk and NASA. And, mm-hmm. you know, I think in a large sense, it's also just we, the society, have a completely unrealistic expectation mm-hmm. that no one's going to perish doing this, by definition, very dangerous thing. You know, there are mm-hmm. test pilots who die, you know, testing experimental planes. There are carrier pilots that die flying off aircraft carriers, you know, men and women die doing dangerous things all the time. And we accept it mm-hmm. as part of risk. It's part. It's an accepted part of reality. It's how a lot of these kinds of things happen and move forward. But the space program, you know, it's kind of the other side of the coin. You know, we elevated the astronauts of the 60s to this heroic status and put them on Life magazine and made them like mm-hmm. huge, larger than life icons. And then the other side of that, though, is when they died in the Apollo 1 tragedy first, Mm -hmm. suddenly the entire nation goes into mourning. And when Challenger happened, and I was in college and I remember that moment, it was devastating. It was a devastating psychic blow to the American public mm-hmm. and probably to the world you know, at, at large. It's just not realistic to think that you can do this kind of work without people perishing. It's just part mm-hmm. of the equation, unfortunately. And, and we have trouble in this society kind of accepting that and moving mm-hmm. on. And if we could accept it, then NASA would accept it because NASA is a reflection of us and it's a public agency. And, you know, so our feelings about this matter then trickle down and inform very strongly how risk averse they are. So in a lot of ways, it's not really their fault. You know, this, the fault is, is not in our stars. It's in ourselves, you know, in a very real sense. Mm-hmm. It's, it's how we react to these tragedies that's really imposed this completely unrealistic culture of safety at the agency. 
It's interesting. Certainly, that was definitely evidenced by the leadership. And you write about all the commissions and the people, the politicians getting, you know, risk adverse. And certainly the culture at at NASA became very risk adverse. But what was this kind of a silver lining, if you will, is after Columbia, we thought we were done. You know, we all thought, Mm. okay, we're never going to launch another space shuttle. That Mm -hmm. there's no appetite. And exactly what you're saying, Ron, that we have kind of lost that fire in the belly and that the general public would no longer be tolerant of taking these kinds of risks and seeing people perish. We all thought that was true. But what was a very pleasant surprise was that actually, when you looked at the polling data, there was actually an enormous outpouring of support to continue. The general public was saying the only way to honor these people's memory is to continue and to press forward, do it safer, do it better, but don't stop. And that was actually a very heartening response that none of us expected to see. What I want to talk to you about, Ron, from a storytelling perspective, is Polaris has started to break apart. There's a cable whipping around, and we've lost some people. They've snapped off into deep space. And one of the final shots we see of the episode is Danny Stevens, who is, you know, just tethered tight to the end of Polaris, floating around in a circle and just taking it all in. Talk to me about the decision for partially for Danny to go and do what he does, but also for that moment, because it seems to really affect him more than just about being out in space. But there seems to be something deeper that goes on with Danny in that moment. Yeah, I mean, we selected Danny to save the day in the episode, partly as a way of sort of saying firmly to the audience that, you know, a new generation is stepping forward in the story of the show. Mm -hmm. Because the show Mm -hmm. is this kind of multi-decade, multi-generation saga of watching the space program change and evolve over time. So we made a point of injuring Ed so that he doesn't rush up there. We we <laughs> we kept you busy so that you couldn't rush up there. We mm-hmm. wanted one of the kids, you know, we wanted somebody that was younger mm-hmm. that the audience had seen grow up as a child mm-hmm. and then come into his own and that he could be the hero for this episode. Mm-hmm. So that was kind of a creative choice right away. And then you're right, mm-hmm. Danny has a lot of issues and there's a lot of things in a, in the troubled soul that is Danny Stevens. Even though he has this great moment of heroism, it felt like it was Mm -hmm. interesting at the end to leave him in a place that was disquieting and that even though he had just done this heroic, yay, we're going to be okay Mm -hmm. kind of moment that for him, he was, you know, on the edge of the abyss and he was alone and Mm -hmm. he was like just being flung around and who knows when or how anybody was going to come out there and save him. And I think that became sort of an interesting, you know, starting point for his character for the rest of the season. While we're talking about Danny, I have to ask you, because the audience is going to want to know, when you are writing and creating a show, and naturally you're going to see what the audience says and what the critics say, and you have a storyline like Danny Stevens and Karen Baldwin in their affair, how does that affect you? Do you allow what folks say to adjust the story? Do you try to keep your blinders on and just truly tell the story from your perspective of this is a story I think is the best? Do you listen to the audience? And how does that feel for you to have something be received with mixed reviews? I try very much not to listen to it. I think I do the audience a disservice by making it a democracy and that the audience is going to vote on on where this goes and what they like. I mean, I love that storyline. Not everybody loved that storyline, but I'm okay with that too, because they don't have to love Mm -hmm. every storyline and every piece. It just has to move them. In some cases, it moved them and made them angry. Mm -hmm. But you know Mm -hmm. what? They were moved. And that's, and I'll take that too. 
and that's okay. And uh, <laughs> I'm of the perverse kind of set that in some ways, the more the audience hates it, the more I kind of go, really? What if I did it again? What if, you know, <laughs> so I'll go to that. I have to restrain that impulse too. I have to go, no, 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 no. That's just as bad as giving it over to them is to start to go, oh, well, let's just do some more of that, you know? So, <laughs> so I try to keep both those impulses at bay and just, okay, what's the best story here? We've had this story with Karen and Danny. And what was important to me going into this season was not to forget about it. Not to just like wipe mm-hmm. it away and pretend it have. Okay, now let's carry that forward. And what happens mm-hmm. next? And where does that go for these characters? What did that mean in their lives? And let's be true to that. As we are coming to a close, Ron, what can we, without too many spoilers, what can we expect from our gang heading into season three and forward? Well, you know, Mars is definitely, I think, in everybody's sights. And I think it'll be interesting to see how their desire to get to Mars is expressed through their characters and the choices that they made. And the race to Mars is certainly going to be a big part of the season, but it's not the only part of the season. I can say that, mm-hmm. you know, it's the season has that as, as a big piece of it, but is the end of the race is not the end of the season is not the end of the story. And I think that's mm-hmm. a, a big thing to keep in mind. And I'd also keep an eye on the Margot story. Mm-hmm. Margot's in a very interesting place at the beginning of the season where we see she's continued to talk to Sergey and she and Sergey have been trading company secrets back and forth to kind of help each other along the way out of a sense of mm-hmm. just you know scientists trying to get past the politics of it all but Margot not quite realizing what jeopardy she's really in and what she's really mm-hmm. getting in bed with and Sergey feeling like oh man you know a puppet and feeling bad about what's going on with Margot and it's not going to go well. Let's let's put it that way. <laughs> that is um, a great place to leave this conversation. I want to thank you both so much for sitting down and chatting with me. Chris, we love what you did with Danny. I mean, you, you do such a great She's job. She's a real bringing hoot. That, bringing that awesome character <laughs> to life. And Ron, thank you for making all this possible because we wouldn't be here without you, obviously. Thank you both. Very you know, true. It's a pleasure and an honor to work with both of you. And I'm always saying television is a team sport. It's been fun to be a player manager in this particular team. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Thanks, guys. Thanks for joining us on this episode of For All Mankind, the official podcast. Be sure to listen and follow on Apple Podcasts and watch For All Mankind on Apple TV Plus where available. And don't forget to tune in next week where we'll discuss episode two. This is an Apple TV Plus podcast produced by Atwell Media. Executive produced by Will Malnati and me, Chris Marshall. Produced by Elliot Davis, Drew Beebe, Naila Andre, and Jenny Barish. Sound editing and mixing by Andrew Holzberger. Until next time, I'm Chris Marshall, safe and sound Earthside.